It's the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have part three in our series, Both And. Uh, once again, this is a series that we've been going through for the last couple of weeks, and uh, we'll continue for uh, about three weeks. Uh, it's a bit of a pul- pulpit swap. Uh, I'm speaking my message at North Shore Vineyard on this particular service, but delivering the same message at a church in uh Trinity Vineyard in Cyprus, Baton Rouge Vineyard, and the New Orleans Vineyard, and those pastors are coming here. So my week back home, so let's head back to North Shore Vineyard Church for the message. Thanks for listening. Well, if if you're new here, we we started a a series for this summer called Both And. We live in a world that is a very much an either-or kind of world. And uh, we find that, that in the kingdom, if you're going to be in the, the kingdom of God, it, it will require a life of tension, that, that we live between the, the polarizations of our world. We step into it as, as peacemakers. And so uh, over the summer, we're, or at least for the next few weeks, we're doing this pulpit exchange. So I spoke in Kenner last weekend at the vineyard down there. And um, next week, I'm going to be in Baton Rouge. I think we had John Maurer from Baton Rouge over here this last weekend. And then, uh, and then I'll be in Houston in a few weeks. So next week, we've got Phil Johnson, the pastor of the New Orleans Vineyard. He's going to be over here. So it's uh, musical chairs, theological chairs. Um, so uh, the message that I get to do for a month is uh, on really one of my favorite topics, which is uh, unity and diversity. I think a lot of times when we think of the church we have this idea that, that God's ideal was that we would all just step into uniformity, that we'd all be the same, you know, that, that if God has his way, we're all going to look the same way, talk the same way, uh, act the same way. But what I see is that, that in the early church, there was incredible diversity and probably one of the biggest testimonies against the principalities and powers of that day was the diversity of the actual early church. Uh, I, it, it took me a long time. I, I grew up in mainly uh, charismatic Pentecostal churches. Anybody come from kind of charismatic backgrounds in here? Yeah. Woo! Yeah, yeah. You, the, y'all the ones that talk back to me. I, I, it's okay. It's okay to talk back, you know. If you grew up in a Catholic church or a, 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 a mainline Protestant one, you might not feel like you can talk back. You can talk back to me in church, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't, don't shout me down all at once right now, all right? Um, but growing up in, in, in more charismatic churches, when it came to the, the second chapter of Acts, which talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, it seemed like for most of, of, of my, uh, up until a little over a year ago, the only way I'd ever seen that passage was that it was just the incredible outpouring of God's Spirit. And the emphasis oftentimes when it came to that chapter was, you know, speaking in tongues, the gifts of the Spirit, and stuff like that. And it's important. But there's something else revolutionary going on in that passage that appeared to me uh, a little over a year ago when I was just kind of reflecting on this passage. And it really has to do kind of with what we're talking about today. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this story about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit real quick, and then we'll get into the meat of this thing. But Jesus had told, the Holy, uh, Jesus had told the, his disciples, it's good that I'm leaving you guys behind. And that probably was not exciting news to the disciples. But Jesus said, it's good that I leave you because instead of having an external relationship with God, you're going to actually get to have the same spirit that I have. The very same spirit that that raised Jesus from the dead. We get to get in on that. And so Jesus says, after I leave, I want you guys to go to Jerusalem and wait 
for the promise of the Holy Spirit, the helper. He will guide you into all truth. And so the disciples do that. So they go to Jerusalem. And I don't know if it's just from living in, you know, South Louisiana. I kind of imagine this scene like those, uh, you know, kind of in the French Quarter, you have those, uh, you know, townhouses, the French ones, you know. And I imagine the disciples kind of in a, because there's a festival going on. That's just the way that I see this. You know, the streets are crowded with people. It's the day of uh, the festival, the first fruits. And the disciples are in this second story townhouse and, and in Jerusalem, and they're praying, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit shows up. And they've got no grid for what, how, you know, Jesus didn't tell them, like, how he's going to show up. And so all of a sudden, they hear this, you know, that was my impression of a mighty rushing wind. It was pretty weak. It sounded like FM static there. Uh, they, they, they hear this mighty wind. And then all of a sudden, they look around, and people have fire on their heads. Just imagine that. It, it's, it's, it's just nothing could prepare them for that. It, this is beyond like Steven Spielberg effects. That they, they see fire on each other's heads, and then they start speaking in languages that none of them knew, but that other people in the city knew. And they spill out of this room, and all of a sudden, they start proclaiming the wonders of God in other languages where people could hear of it that were gathered there from all over the world. They could hear the wonders of God in their own language. And what is, what, is, what is interesting is that Peter, when he tries to explain what's going on, because a lot of people are mocking him, they're like, dude, you guys have been hitting the bottle way too early in the day. And Peter's like, no, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not getting drunk yet. And, and, and Peter says, this is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy. Now, here's, here's one thing I want to note about tongues. When, when tongues was first given to the church, it was something, it wasn't just a meaningless kind of, you know, it wasn't just a, a crazy thing. It actually was something that tore down the walls. You see that? Oftentimes we think of, when we think of something like tongues, we think of it like, oh, that, that's, that's crazy. Like people are going to, uh, but, but, but when we see the, the gift of, of speaking in tongues given to the, to the first church, it was actually to tear down the walls so that other people could hear about Jesus. And then when Peter gets up to explain what's going on, this is crazy because he, he actually quotes a prophecy from the, the, the book of Joel. And if you grew up in a, in a Pentecostal or charismatic church, you can recite this one by memory. But this was a revolutionary uh, prophecy in the Old Testament because if you read the Old Testament, there's only a handful of people that got in on the manifest presence of God. Only a handful of people. And for the most part, they were, they were guys. And they weren't just any guys. They were Jewish guys. And for the most part, among Jewish guys, there was only a handful of Jewish guys called Levites that, that could, could really get in. There was one Levite per year, the high priest, who could go into the Holy of Holies and get around the you know, presence of God. And it was a terrifying thing. They tied bells on you so to make sure you know, if they, st- they stop hearing you move, like uh, pull them out, you know. And, 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 and Joel comes along and he gives this prophecy. He says, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all the Pentecostal people said? All. Not all men. All flesh. All flesh. And then, and then he goes on to say some radical things that, that, that break down the walls. He says, your sons and your daughters. See, up to that point, it had been a guy's club. Now, now women get in on it. Your sons and your daughters. How many sons and daughters do we have in here today? Okay, it's a trick question. <laughs> 
Um, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will, will dream dreams. You know, those who think they're too old to, for God to use them, they're going to get in on this. Your young men will see visions, you, you, those who think they're too young. And then Joel says something that is completely just doesn't make sense to anybody in the world. He says, even on your servants, uh, you know, the word we translate servants is actually slaves. <laughs> you know, even on your, your, your slaves, the ones who, who can't own any property, who don't get a say in this world, whose lives are, are ruled by others, even they get to get in on it, both men and women. And so here Peter is several hundred years later on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is pouring out and it's just crazy off the charts. And Peter, when he wants to explain it, he doesn't just say, oh, well, this is what Jesus told us to wait for. Uh, He doesn't just say, well, (laughs) try to explain the fire on people's heads and stuff. Peter says, this is actually the fulfillment of that prophecy that happened in Joel. This is a new day. And God's spirit is breaking out. You don't have to just be a Jewish guy to get in on this now. This is for everyone. It's for everyone. And when we see the early church, I, I believe the, the, the biggest testimony of the early church was, you know, when Paul says in Christ there's, there's neither male nor female, a Jew or Gentile, slave or free. But Christ is the only identifier that matters. When you look at the early church... It was a testimony to the principalities and powers of that day. And I'm not just talking in spiritual terms. I'm talking like like Roman governors and stuff. It was a, a testimony to the people in power of that day that there's a new king in this town. And so the church was the only place on planet Earth where Jews would hang out with Gentiles, where slaves would hang out with free people, where men and women would hang out. And think of that testimony to the rest of the world. Think of that. It was powerful. And it was threatening. And so we see that, that one of the biggest uh, powerful things that God did in the church from the very birth of the church was reflecting unity and diversity. Unity in Christ and a diversity of different people, groups, tribes, places in society. Now, I met a guy recently. I, I played a little uh, music festival thing back uh, in, in May. And, and I met the sax player who was amazing. I mean, I, I think this guy gets to, like, he, he's the kind of musician that's got, I don't even know how you get to this, but he gets to vote on the Grammys. Like, nobody's ever asked me, like, who I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was playing at this festival, and this guy, I, he was just great, man. And he, he could sing and play, and he played other instruments, too. And he uh, he gets off the stage. He knows I'm, he finds out I'm a pastor. He goes, oh, you know, I'm a Christian, too. I was like, oh, that's awesome. He said, yeah, but at my church, they, uh, they, they kicked me off the worship team. I'm like, why would they kick you off the worship team? Like, if you were at my church, we would just have a sax solo for worship. Like, that was it. Like, you just get up there. We're just going to, you know, uh, fill the spirit. Um, and he said, oh, well, they, they, they knocked me off the team because I was too old. And this guy's like 63. That's not too old, huh? I get an amen. All right, now y'all are waking up. Uh, he said, yeah, they, they wanted, you know, younger, prettier people up there on stage. And I was just like. It made me sad, not only because what this guy said, but actually I've been hearing reports of this all over the United States right now. There's a trend going on to do this. And, you know, what I love here at North Shore Vineyard is that on any given Sunday, you, you never know, like, who's going to be on the worship team. We might have, you know, a 14-year-old girl leading on the keyboards, uh, a, a 63-year-old guy on, on the organs, a, a, a hair metal guy on the electric guitar, a funk bass player, a, 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 a funk drummer, uh, you know, kinds of musicians that would never, ever play together anywhere else in the world. 
and they do in the church because of Jesus. And to me, like, I think, I mean, it's a crazy thing what we do here at church, you know? I mean, I've been leading worship for 20 years now, and it's crazy to cobble together, like, in, 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 in the real world, you put together a band, you're like, we're trying to do an 80s metal band, and you get 80s metal musicians who show up. In the church, you get country musicians and, and you know, jazz musicians, and you got to figure out, like, how are we going to make this all work? How are we all going to get on the same page? But we do it because of Jesus, and I believe that's a testimony uh, to the world. Like, if we all just look like, you know, pretty 25-year-olds, um, that, that might be cool for some but I think we miss the power of what actually God's done and so I love that in our worship so I I could go on and on about that but I got a lot more to say today so today we're going to be talking about how it is that we can because you know this idea of unity and diversity like even as I'm saying it you're like yes that's great but but then when we get down to actual real life not so easy it's not so easy to have unity with people that are different than you right we naturally have this tendency to surround us with people that are like us, don't we? Like, like people that vote the same way that you do. They go to the same Starbucks. Their kids are in the same schools or the same homeschools. Or, uh, you know, we, that, that we, we just hang out with people that are like us because that's normal. But Jesus is calling to something that, that, that's uh, uh, Abbey normal, uh, uh, that, that's supernatural, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some work. And so I want to talk about this today. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So Paul says, in, I want you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, Paul is saying, because Jesus has come into the world, because he's lived as one of us, because he's gone to the cross, because he has been resurrected, that we can't go on living as if nothing has happened in the world. We have to walk worthy of that. We didn't earn it. We didn't, we didn't get the, the, what God did because we were deserving of it. But there is a response that's called for. We can't live in light of this and, and not change the way we do things. So Paul says, live worthy of the calling. And how does he say to live worthy of the calling? He defines it by striving for unity, making every effort for unity. And that's, that's I, I think the reason he uses that word striving or, or every effort for unity is because it's hard. It's hard to be with people that are different. It's hard to be with other Christians who, who have different views on things than you. It's hard. If you're in this church, if you've been here for a few years, uh, you know, the idea of community is great. But the reality of community, it's like it's, it's tough. It's tough to work through things. It's, it's tough to not just run every time you have a disagreement. And so Paul says, strive for unity. And how does he define this? He says, first off, walk in humility. Walk in humility. 
Humility is, is kind of saying, it's not like, oh, I'm a worm. That's false humility. <laughs> humility is walking with the understanding that I have a very small perspective on the universe. <laughs> we are tempted to look around and see what we see through our, our you know, our, our, our particular place in the world. And we want to paint everything with this, you know, like the world looks exactly like this. Humility is saying, maybe I don't see everything. <laughs> maybe I have some blind spots in my life. Maybe I could be wrong on a couple of things. Well, what? I mean, I've been wrong once or twice in my life, right? Humility is saying, you know, I, I don't have to have the last word. It's not about that, that a relationship is more important than having the last word. It's more important than being right. Humility, walk in humility with one another. Secondly, he says gentleness. This is not a popular idea on Facebook. For those of y'all on Facebook, right? Oh, come on. Somebody? Gentleness? I see, I see this happen all the time. Somebody posts a, a post about, you know, the government or guns or vaccines or, or schooling or Obama. And then it's, it's a, a, a really mean post. And then somebody else is like, oh, no, you didn't. And then, I, you, you know, you, you go and get all the YouTube videos you can get and blogs. And, and, and you rally everybody to, to, to fight this person. And pretty soon it's just like, and, and the truth is, at the end of the day, maybe you are right. But you can be right and be wrong. Right? <laughs> Getting confused here, yeah. <laughs> you can be right and be wrong. We need to hold our views with gentleness and humility. You know, that, that we're not out there to beat each other up with what, you know, I've got, for those of you that know me well, I've got very strong opinions on things. But I'm, I'm trying to learn how to walk in gentleness with what I believe, walk in humility. You can do that. It's possible. There was this thing that used, you know, I used to hear about it called civility. Back in the old days, the, you know, people would engage in civility in politics. I, I, it, it's kind of a lost art, but uh, humility, gentleness. Then, then he says patience. Walk in patience. You know, I think one of the best ways to, to be patient with other people is to realize how patient God is with you. Right? <laughs> I think we only are impatient with other people when we forget how patient God is with us, right? I can only be a jerk to uh, uh, Shane over here and be impatient with him when I'm forgetting how patient God is with me. <laughs> and sometimes I think, you know, I bump into people. For those of y'all that, that knew me 20 years ago, I, I was devout, I was sincere, I loved God, but I was a jerk. I mean, I really was. And some of y'all may think, well, you still are a jerk sometimes. I still am. I don't want to act like I've arrived. But if you knew me back then, you'd see the progress. <laughs> but I was a jerk. I, I love pointing my finger at other people. I love I loved getting in fights with people over faith. I, I, I just loved it. I mean, when I was in the university, I loved arguing with my professors, man, just to get in there and fight and uh, I, I was a jerk, and sometimes I bump into myself, you know, that 20-year-old version of myself, and, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, chill out, dude, and, but I realize, you know, God was patient with this dude, 
God was patient with me. There's a lot of times God should have given up on me, a lot of times. I gave him ample opportunity, but he didn't. He was patient with me. I'm still here today. I still love God. And, and, and for those of you who track my life, you may see a little bit of progress over the years. <laughs> uh, let's be patient with other people because God's been patient with us. And then finally, he says, bearing with one another in love. I think probably one of the best ways that I can, I can uh, understand this would be marriage. You know, when you get married, uh, that, there's this idea that we have in the culture. For those of you who aren't married, let me shatter your preconceived ideas real quick. <laughs> there's this idea that is propagated particularly in movies and in love songs. You know, if you see any movies, whether they're romantic comedies or even Disney films, chick flicks, the, the whole movie is about getting this guy over here and this girl here. And how are they going to overcome their obstacles to, to, to actually get together? And then the movie finally ends with them at the wedding day, usually, right? They finally, they finally, and then before the credits roll, it says, and they lived happily ever after. And we know that's a lie. <laughs> And we keep, we keep going back to these movies. We know it's a lie. I'm not saying that there's no happiness in it. But if you actually endeavor to get married, there's going to be some days where you don't like the other person. And where that other person doesn't like you. There's going to be days where you get on each other's nerves. There's going to be times where it's tough. There's going to be a lot of times where love is more of a choice than it is a feeling. But you choose it. Because you're committed to one another. There's something bigger than your own feelings. There's something bigger than, than uh, just, just turning away. You, you stick with it. You bear with one another in love because that's what you signed up for. Now, I know some of you have had, had rough times with marriage, and I'm not saying that in a condemning way. I'm just saying that, that if you get two people who, who are on the same page about that, and they have that understanding that there's something bigger and we're going to commit our lives and we're going to, we're going to get in. There's, there's amazing things that can happen in your life when you do that. I'm coming up on 17 years of marriage, right? 17? Oh, yeah. yeah, praise God. <laughs> um, and I, I can tell you, I'm, I'm a better man because I've been married to Dina for 17 years. I am. I, I'm not just saying that just to, you know, Flatter her. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying it's it's true. It's true. Because I needed a relationship in my life where I couldn't just run every time I had a conflict. I needed something in my life where I couldn't just run when I had a disagreement. And marriage did that for me. It, it, it kept me in there. And so when you're, when you're forced to have to work through stuff, it's tough, but it changes you. It'll make you into a better person. Now, I'm not saying if you're in an abusive relationship, I'm, I'm you know, understand what I'm talking about. I, I said this last week in Kinder, and some lady came up. She's like, well, there's people who've been in. I'm not talking about, if you're in an abusive relationship, that's a different thing, okay? But if you've got two people who love each other and who are committed to one another, that can be the ground for transformation. And you will change. You'll become more like Jesus because you stick it out. You will. I see a lot of people who spend their life in a perpetual adolescence going from one relationship to the next. They love the high of being in love. They love that, you know. They love that, that, that kind of thing that we propagate in movies and stuff. They love that feeling. 
because it feels like you're on drugs, because you are. <laughs> Neurologically, you can read about it. You're on drugs when you're in love, uh, produced by your body. Um, but a lot of people seek that feeling all the time, but they never find out what true love is because true love can only happen when you bear with one another, when you're committed to one another. What would it be like if we did that in the church? What would it be like if we, if we actually committed to actually sitting down and talking with one another when we have a problem instead of blogging about it or, or tweeting about it or, or running our mouths or leaving every time it got tough? That's one of the things that blows me away. I mean, I've only been a pastor for a few years, but, you know, like, like when people just up and leave and they never tell me anything. And I'm like, what, you know, do I do something? Was it the music? Was it the uh, lack of writing on our envelopes? Uh, I'm trying to fix that. <laughs> I had a, there's a family that left our church recently, but I, I, I got to tell you, they gave me a call. Hey, can we sit down and talk? Absolutely. And we talked. And they told me why they want to leave. I was like, cool. Like, if you're expecting us to be this thing, we're never going to be that. But I totally understand. If you feel like, like God is moving you somewhere else or you feel like more at home somewhere, that's fine. Thank you so much for talking to me, though. <laughs> I'm not going to bite your head off. But we're afraid of conflict so many times. And God calls us to bear with one another in love. Now, I want to look at two, two little diagrams in closing today. I'm saying closing. I'm about halfway done. Um, <laughs> preach. Uh, these are two, two analogy, two little things that kind of help us practically understand how we hold our beliefs in the church and then outside of the church, how we can deal with people that are not Christians in a way that, that proclaims the unity of Christ and what God has done. So... If you've been around here a while, you've probably seen both of these things. I show them a few times a year, but they're good stuff. So um, the first one is kind of the, we would call this concentric circles of belief. And we start with Jesus in the center. Uh, oh, actually, let's go to the next one. Yeah, right there. We'll come back to that other one in a minute. I probably got them out of order. Um, first off, we start with Jesus in the center. We believe at this church. That Jesus is the point of the Bible. He's the ultimate revelation of God. We believe that when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We believe that, that, that Jesus is exactly like the Father. The Father is exactly like Jesus. Jesus is the representation of the Father perfectly. We want to know what God looks like. We look at Jesus. Jesus is also the foundation of the church. He's the lens through which we read scripture. And he's also the foundation of our, our, um, our unity. I tell people all the time, you know, if, if you're a new Christian... Don't start in the book of Genesis. <laughs> start in the Gospels. Read the stories of Jesus. He's the point of it all, right? I, I, believe, I, I believe the Bible is like a map. And Jesus is the actual reality that the map points towards. So, like, you could have a map of downtown Covington, but the map isn't Covington, right? The point of the map is to help you experience Covington, right, and get to where you want to go, <laughs> The point of the Bible is to point us towards Jesus, but Jesus is, is the Lord of the Bible, right? He's, he's, he's the God that we encounter. He's the foundation of our church. He's also the foundation of our unity with other believers. So while I may disagree with Catholics and Baptists and Pentecostals on certain aspects of their theology and, and practices, 
If they believe Jesus is the foundation, guess what? We're family. We're family. I mean, any of y'all been to a family reunion before? All right. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> so we start with Jesus. He's the foundation. He's the only foundation you can build your faith on that is a sure foundation. He's it. You build your foundation on anything else, it is going to crumble. So we start with Jesus. Secondly, we go to dogma. Now, dogma is a word that's kind of got a bad reputation in our world because we think of people who are dogmatic and they're jerks and stuff, uh, like the 20-year-old version of me. Uh, but, but dogma really, the, the word initially just meant the handful of beliefs that the early church believed in, like the, the, you know, the, the, the Apostles' Creed, for instance. If, if you read the Apostles' Creed, it talks about uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It talks about the incarnation of Christ, the death, burial, resurrection, the cross, uh, that Jesus will one day return to judge the living and the dead, the resurrection of, of believers. And it, that's pretty, it, pretty much it. If you go to our, our website, that's our statement of belief there. <laughs> like, we believe these things. Um, and every church in the history of Christianity that we would call a, a, an orthodox church, you know, an orthodox Christian church, would believe those things. If you don't believe those things, then you're kind of stepping outside of church into something else. And so we start with Jesus in the center, then we move out to dogma, a handful of things that all churches, uh, regardless of their denomination, have believed throughout the ages. And then we go into the level of doctrine. Now, the thing is, the further we move from the center, the looser we hold to, to these, these beliefs. Uh, it does, it, we, we, we hold them with a little bit more open hand. So, for instance, doctrine. In the 20 years I've been, a, 20 plus years that I've been a Christian, my doctrine has changed uh, considerably. Over that time. Now the stuff in the center never changed. I never I believed in Jesus. Uh, but, but honestly as I experienced certain things in church. And certain questions came up in my mind and stuff. Like my, my doctrine was always being formed. Trying you know I, I see it as trying to conform to, to, to Christ. But a lot of times we make the mistake of, of taking our doctrine or our theology and we make that the foundation. And I think doctrine is something that always needs to be addressed and, and rethought of. I mean, if you look at the history of the church, I mean, doctrine has always changed. And sometimes not for the better. Uh, but doctrine would be, you know, and, and maybe this isn't a word you use much. So doctrine, theology, is, this would be things like how we believe on the gifts of the Spirit, uh, communion table, the ordination of women, uh, Calvinism, Armenianism, any of those kind of ism things, um, that's, that's doctrine. And what I say is it's good to have doctrine, and it's good to, and we all do, by the way, we all have theology, but it's good to think through that and constantly reevaluate it in light of Jesus and, and, and the world that we live in, because we live in an ever-changing world that's always presenting new questions to us. Um, and we've got to work through those things from the place of Jesus. And then finally, we have opinion. Opinion is the furthest circus circle out. Circus. Uh, circle. <laughs> and, then, and when we get to opinion, we've got to hold on to our opinion. Number one, we've got, to, we've got to identify our opinion for what it is, by the way. And opinions could be anything from your views on politics to gun control to uh, the economy, whatever. And a lot of times we want to take those and baptize them and then make them a foundational issue in the middle of the church, right? And, and um, so, for instance, uh, uh, I saw this a lot when I was in college ministry. Um, 
that, that I would see uh, kids that, that grew up in the church and were kind of sheltered, and then they show up in college, and they, they grew up kind of believing in a young earth kind of creationist view of the world. Then they go to, to college classes, but they didn't just believe in it. They believed it as foundational to their faith. And so they go to college, you know, freshman biology and some earth science. And all of a sudden, they start hearing that, you know, the, the world's a lot older than 10,000 years. And, and all of a sudden, they have this crisis of belief. If, if the earth isn't less than 10,000 years old, then I don't believe any of this stuff. And they lose their faith. And I've seen it happen time and time again. That's taking an opinion issue and moving it to the center. Now, some of you are like, that ain't an opinion issue. Well, I, I would say it is. Because I, don't, I, I haven't seen any doctrinal statement that, that gets into how God created everything. Right? They say God created it. We believe in God, the creator of all, <laughs> maker of heaven and the earth, and Jesus Christ is only begotten son. There's a lot of room for how that actually happened. I know in this church we've got people who are young earth creationists. We've got people you know, who, who believe in a, in the, that the earth was created in a literal you know, six days. God rested on the seventh, uh, you know, 24-hour period days, and the earth is 10,000 years old. We've got other people that are young earth creationists who believe God uh, created the world, and, and, and it's billions of years old. We've got other people who, who have no problem with even seeing that God was behind evolution. And I'm, I'm fine with all those people being in our church. And I'm never going to get up here and, and do a message on my particular belief in all this. Because to me, it's, that's an area we, can, we don't need to fight about that. We don't need to fight because it's not foundational. Now, the fact that God made it all, that's foundational. <laughs> but how he did this, I mean, we're going to figure it all out one day when we see him face to face. But when we realize that this is an opinion that we have on a particular idea in the Bible, then we can have grace with other people. We don't have to divide over this, right? And there's a lot of division in the world over that issue. Because we've made it foundational. Jesus is the foundation. He's the stuff in the middle. I see this a lot of times with the book of Revelation. Like people want to argue and, and divide over that stuff. And it's like, if you read the book of Revelation, it's a crazy, like, it's a, the wildest book you're going to read. You know? It looks like a, well, I'm not even going to say it. It just looks crazy. We don't need to fight about that stuff. That's opinion. It's all speculation. I believe at the end of the day that the whole point is that we affirm is that Jesus is going to come back and uh, new heaven and new earth, he's going to restore everything. Um, but other than that, how he gets there, I don't know. And I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is and what the mark is and, and all this. You know, like, I, I've been there. I've done that. <laughs> you know. So... We start with the foundation of Jesus. We work our way out to dogma, then doctrine, then opinion. We realize these things for what we are, for what they are. But the good thing is that now we can be in relationship with other people who have different doctrine than us, who have different opinions than us, because our unity is not based on these doctrinal ideas. It's based on Jesus. And so if anybody calls on the name of Jesus, even though we may have different doctrine, we can sit down and have dialogue and maybe experience God in that conversation. You know, there was a day where when I first became a Christian, I was a part of charismatic evangelical church. And I thought, like, our particular church is, is the only church that knows how to read the Bible. And we're the only ones who God really likes. We're, you know, if there is a remnant on planet Earth, it is us. And, uh, but I got to tell you now, if you look at my bookshelf now, I, I started realizing, like, there's some Catholic people 
that knew God in ways that a lot of Protestants never did. There's some Greek Orthodox people who have some understandings about God that I've never bumped into. And some Pentecostals and Methodists, all these people. And they were all on my blacklist at one time, by the way. We can experience God through these things. But let's, let's keep the main thing the main thing. All right. The next idea that I want to look at, so that's uh, the circles of belief. And I'll wrap this up really quick because I know we got to pick up kids here in a second. Um, the next thing would be centered set versus bounded set. We, we use this analogy quite a bit. Uh, in a bounded set, uh, think of, you can apply this to any organization, but in the church, what a bounded set looks like is the importance is the boundary. Either you're in the circle or you're out the circle. And so that boundary could be anything from a doctrinal belief or, or you have to pray the prayer or you have to look a certain way. I mean, I've been in some churches where that boundary is really thick. You know, you have to believe certain political ideas. You've got to dress up a certain way. You've got to talk a certain way. You can't associate with certain people. And the point of a bounded set is getting in the circle. Now, the problem with a bounded set is that it begins to feel like a subculture. You ever been to a church like that where it just starts feeling inward <laughs> and you know you're at a church like that when you're afraid to take outsiders there, you know? Like I, <laughs> I was in a church for many years where I'd be like, I want my friends to know Jesus. I'm just, I don't know what's going to happen here, you know? It's <laughs> and, and in a bounded set, it feels like a distinctly different culture. And the problem is if you're an outsider, you feel like if you're going to be a part of that group, you've got to get rid of your culture. And nobody wants to get rid of their culture unless you're called to be a missionary. And then that's part of your calling is to enter into the culture of others. And so in a bounded set, and this is the way I think we, we typically organize church. We, you know, you, the, the point is getting in. Now, here's, here's how bounded set worked in my early years as a Christian. I would spend a whole lot of time trying to convert people. And then if I converted somebody, then I'd move on to the next person. Because, you know, I was just concerned with getting them in the middle, you know. And, and I never had a relationship beyond that. Now, here's, here's a better way of looking at it, I believe, uh, centered set. In a centered set approach, you take away the boundary. The boundary is not the big issue now. Now the issue is we put Jesus in the center. And now the question is, are you moving towards Jesus or are you moving away from Jesus? So in the New Testament, we can see this, this uh, kind of idea played out. The Pharisees were very close to Jesus in one sense. Uh, Pharisees were guys. Jesus was a guy. Pharisees were Jews, Jesus was a Jew, they studied the scriptures, so he, uh, lots of similarities. They're very close to Jesus, but were they moving towards him? No, they're moving away. In John chapter 4, we see the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus comes up to her, and, and he uh, kind of reads her mail, he tells her about the kingdom of God, and she begins to move towards Jesus. Now, in that culture at that time, the Samaritan woman at the well was about as far away from Jesus as you could get. Different race, a despised race, by the way, a woman living an immoral lifestyle. I mean, she was way over here. And yet she begins moving towards Jesus. Under a centered set, understanding the uh, Samaritan woman over here who's far away from Jesus but moving towards him is, is much better off than the Pharisee who's next to Jesus who's moving away. So in a, in, in a centered set question, it's, it's not enough to just say, oh, well, I took a membership class 20 years ago. I got saved at the Billy Graham crusade you know, 60 years ago. The question now is, Okay, are you still moving towards Jesus, right? We know this in marriage. It's possible to be married to someone. You, you've got a centered set. You know, you're, you're in the same group, and yet you can be moving away from them, right? Your heart can be drifting. 
So the important thing is not that, oh, yeah, I got married 17 years ago. I got a ring to prove it and a wedding video and, and a book. Well, are you still in love with your wife? Are you still working on communication? Are you, you, still, you still moving towards her? Now, now here's where centered set understanding gets really fun when it comes to people outside of the church. Because now I'm not trying to talk people into to beliefs. I'm operating with what God is doing in their life. So, for instance, uh, as a young evangelical, I was told, man, we got to go win souls. we got to save souls. And, and, and the, the soul being this mysterious part of a human being, that the only part that God really liked about a person, and it's hidden, and we got to save that thing. And so I would, I would try to save souls. Now, I know in this room we've got some good salespeople. I am not a good salesperson. I'm not good salespeople. Uh, <laughs> I'm the kind of person that you sell stuff to, right? Uh, I'm that guy. <laughs> and I never felt very good. You know, I hear pastors all the time talking about taking a plane trip. I was flying to Toledo, and, uh, and I witnessed to this guy next to me for three hours, and we landed on the ground, and he was repenting and crying, and he came into the thing. And I'm like, that's never going to be me. Like, like on a plane, I put my iPod headphones in. I look out the window. Like, I don't like talking to strangers. I freeze up. It's, it's weird, right? And I always felt like, man, I'm trying to sell Jesus. And, and I was objectifying people because I wasn't really interested in you. I'm just interested in this mysterious part inside of you called a soul because God wants that. That's the part of you that he loves. And, and as, soon as, I could, as soon as my sales pitch finally worked, on occasion it did, I would leave you alone, have nothing else to do with you. I didn't really love you as a person. I didn't see you as a person. Under a centered set understanding that we, we're free to actually see people as people. And now we enter into relationships because we're not primarily concerned with getting him in the circle. Now we enter into relationships like Jesus said. Jesus said, the son only does what he sees the father doing. Now our question isn't, how can I turn this uh, how can I turn this uh, discussion into getting them to come to the church or getting them to believe with this idea? Now the question is, what do I see God doing in this person's life? I believe God is at work in the lives of every human being on planet Earth right now. And most people don't know it. And so now when I hang out, at, hang out with people that aren't in the church, you know what I do? I just ask God, what are you doing? What are you doing? So I'll go hang out at the little cigar shop over here on a Friday afternoon. And most of the people in there don't go to church. And I'm not trying to get them to come to church. A couple of them do come to church now. But that's not my goal. I'm just trying to love these people and, 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 and see what God's doing. I played at a music festival recently. And, and the guy who had thrown it on, you know, this has been going on. It's a kind of a private party thing that's been going on for 20 years. The guy who put it on, uh, I come up to him at the end and I said, man, Thanks so much for the invitation. I enjoyed coming out here. And he knew, he knew as a pastor, he said, well, this is, this is my church. Now, centered set Crispin, I mean the bounded set Crispin of 20 years ago, I would have argued with him, like, this is not a church. This can't be a church. Because, you know, but what I ended up saying, I said, you know what? I like your church. Because I came in here as an outsider, and I was welcomed in. I was shown hospitality. People fed me. I look around, I see better community at this little music gathering than I see in most churches. In fact, I'd say a lot of churches can learn from you. What was I doing there? I was paying attention to what I saw, the evidence of God in that guy's life. And pointing that, that, that follow that long enough, you're going to hit God. Now, no, now, now, here's the problem. A lot of people get stuck with a feeling and they never follow it to its source, which is, which is God. 
I was counseling with a young man several months ago. He comes in. He, he grew up in church, but he'd become an atheist for many years, got into a lot of stuff that he was not happy with. And, and he told me, he began to open up. He says, you know, the only thing in my life that, that, that is worth anything right now is the love that I have for my, my girlfriend's uh, kid. He's like, I just love this kid. I love this kid like a father. You know what I said to him? Even though he, he said, I'm an atheist, I don't even know why I'm here today. You know what I said to him? That love that you feel right there, I'm going to go ahead and call that God. I believe that comes from God. I don't believe it's separate from God. I believe that comes from God. That may be the, and, and you know what? That's the only bit of God that he was experiencing in his life. What happened from that conversation very shortly was he encountered Christ. But I didn't start by trying to get him to believe in God. I didn't start with that. He's like, I don't even know if I believe in God. I said, that's, that's okay. He believes in you. You don't have to believe in God to experience God. He's moving in your life right now. And so now my, my, my job as a, as a pastor, it gets a lot funner now. Because now I'm just trying to pay attention to what God's up to. I met a guy at a, 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 an event at a um, nursing home. I played a talent show a few weeks ago. <laughs> I get some strange gigs. And this guy, I, I played a, a Louis Armstrong song and sat down. My, my, my stepdad's in this uh, nursing home. That's how I got in there. And then this guy who went up a couple of, couple of people after me, he comes up to me at the end. He's like, what's up, Crispin? I'm like, I, I didn't recognize the guy at first. But all of a sudden, I remembered. We did a, we did a, a block party out here three years ago uh, during Fall for Art. And I had my band playing out there. And we were playing a Nine Inch Nails song called Head Like a Hole, which is, again, <laughs> for those of y'all who don't nine, know Nine Inch Nails, it's not really uplifting music. But it was the one song in that group that I could, could, could uh, agree with because it was talking about the idolatry of money. So was, I was like, I, okay, I can affirm that. <laughs> Can't affirm most of the stuff you say, but I believe that. And we're singing that song out there. This guy walks up, and, and he, he really enjoyed it. I didn't know. I didn't meet him that night. But two years later, I'm in the green room next door to the bar and doing an open mic night there. And this guy comes up to me after I did a song. He said, did you play that Nine Inch Nails song out there? I said, yeah. You're a pastor? Yeah. I began talking to him for about an hour and a half. Now, he was loaded, and <laughs> he really was. And I've had a lot of these conversations with drunk people. You know, you talk, they get all, you know, sad. And, <laughs> and, and, and I gave him my card. I was like, hey, when, you, when you're not drunk, let's go have coffee. I never heard back from him again until the other night when I was at the nursing home. And I talked to him for about an hour and a half and talked to him about God moving his life. But, I mean, just, just kind of the same way I'm telling you, all these other things. I wasn't trying to get him to come to church or anything. Just moving, just, just, just trying to pay attention to what God was doing in his life. He comes up to me at this nursing home the other day. He's like, he, he, he's, he's married now. He's actually leading worship in a church now in Bogalusa. And, uh, you know, his, his life has changed. So, at the end of the day... I'm just saying these approaches, whether centered set or the concentric circles of beliefs, they give us ways to hold our feet in a way that, that affirms Jesus as our foundation, but also gives us a lot of room to, to reflect the diversity that God has in his kingdom and to enjoy and, and, and experience the exciting stuff of what it means to be kingdom people. All right. Why don't y'all stand? I got to shut up. Uh, We've we gone way over time, so...
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with a reading of this passage uh, from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Um, and this will be our, our final prayer. In light of all this, here's what I want, to, want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run on the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline. Not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love. Alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You were all called to travel down the same road in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. God, give us the grace to live these words out, Lord. Lord, where we need to repent, where we need to change our thinking on these things, God, just, just give us the grace to do that, Lord. Lord, I pray your blessing on this group that, that we would be people of kindness, patience, that we would bear with one another in love, that we would strive for unity, God. We would value the things that you value, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite some uh, prayer team people up here. If you'd like to stick around and get prayer, if you don't have kids. If you've got kids, go pick them up and then come back and get prayer. See you all next weekend.